Well, good morning. It is good to see your faces, or at least your eyes, and uh, there is something about being together in each other's presence that really makes a big difference, doesn't it? So I'm glad that you're here, and for all of you that are watching us online, we're thankful for your presence too. I've got a couple questions for you to start us out today. The first is, uh, how good are you at math? Second, how many of you enjoy looking at a mirror? Anybody answer both of them to the positive? Some of you, 0 for 2. <laughs> you probably heard the phrase, uh, smoke and mirrors. Well, this morning I want to talk to you about math and mirrors. I'm going to give us an equation that I think captures the heart of the text that we have to say. And we'll use a very uh, instructive image to pull it all together as well. So the math and, and the mirrors. It's a further lesson in what we've called blue jeans theology, how we find how to live in an everyday life, uh, the Christian faith, as James gives us some instruction. So go with me to chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 21, go down through verse 25. We'll set the scene by reading the text. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Okay, here's the overarching equation, the math that I want you to think about. And that is listening plus doing equals blessing. Can you say that with me so that you can kind of root it in your heart too? Listening plus doing equals blessing. Now, it's interesting how John sets up the whole context for this equation, for this math. He talks about how we need to do something personally in the way of preparation. He begins by talking about needing to get rid of all the moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. There was a professor that I had in, in Bible college back in the old days who taught what was called senior Bible. It was a capstone class for all the students that were there as they would finish up their Bible study. And it started at seven o'clock in the morning. That's real seven o'clock in the morning. In the wintertime, that was early. I mean, you walked up to the class in the dark, sometimes in the snow and the ice. You know how those old days were back then. Now, that wasn't, particularly, that wasn't particularly affecting for me what was going to happen because I was a junior and this was senior Bible. And I was, I was really thankful that what this professor called for everybody to do didn't happen to me. It seemed that for some reason he wasn't getting the attention from the class that he thought he needed. And so he developed this condition, this requirement for all students before they could come to the class. Every student was to get up earlier than usual take a shower, I know this is hard to believe, but the guys had to put on a coat and a tie, and the girls had to dress up in a dress. The ticket to the classroom door was to get up, to get ready, 
and to get dressed. Hopefully they were all dressed, but you know, you know how, how, how that goes. Now, I'm fully aware that would never fly today. In fact, when I taught down at CCU, I had some morning classes, maybe 10, 11 o'clock, and a lot of times the students stumbled into the class right out of bed at 10 or 11 o'clock, and sometimes late because they had to stop and get some breakfast on the way. So I know that what happened then would not work now. But back to my story. Get up, take a shower, get fully dressed in your own right mind before that class started at 7 o'clock. The professor thought that the process of preparation would provide a more attentive class. Now, fortunately, that policy didn't last beyond that semester. I didn't have to worry about it the next year. And I'm not sure really how wise it was, but it did get people there and awake and present. And it may be kind of crazy to talk about ties and coats and dresses when we're talking about blue jeans theology, which is that everyday way in which we relate to each other. But if you listen to what James has to say, he is telling us that before we can hear, we have got to clean up. We have got to get rid of those things in our life that would make it impossible for us to hear. Now, interestingly, the word that he uses here for this filth, uh, this cleanup process in the original Greek, in medical terms, can have the sense of getting wax out of your ears, which is, which is interesting. Maybe it has a little bit of a double meaning here, where this cleaning up the filth, uh, like getting rid of the old dirty clothes or cleaning the dirt off the body, could also involve getting the wax out of your ears. Anything that impedes the word of God being able to get into my life and my heart. When I was growing up, sometimes my mom would say something to me, and I would be listening, but I would not be listening. You ever, you ever been there? And she might, good-naturedly, the first time that I ignored what she had to say, say something like, hey, you need to clean out your ears? Did your mom ever have, have, have anybody say something like that? It's kind of like the soap on the tongue or the clean out the ears. I don't know if we do that anymore, but that's, that's how she worked. And if I kept on going... Uh, she would get a little more strong in her admonition for me to listen. But it forces me to ask, what is it that makes me deaf to God? What is it that clogs up my ability to hear what he has to say? Jesus told a parable one time about how people receive, how they hear God's word in a different way. Listen to how he said it. Listen, Jesus says, a farmer went out to plant some seeds and as he scattered them across the field, some of the seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them, and other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock, and the seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun, and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, even 100 times as much as had been planted. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen and understand. But the fact was a lot of people who listened to this story and a lot of the teachings of Jesus did not hear and they did not understand. And the disciples, after it was all over with, asked Jesus, why is it that this happens? And he said, some were given or permitted to understand they had insight into the secrets of the kingdom, but others were not. And that for those who genuinely listened with open ears, 
even more knowledge would come their way. They would understand even more. Or I like the way Eugene Peterson captures it. He says, whenever someone has a, a ready heart for this, the insights and understandings flow freely. But if there is no readiness, any traces of receptivity soon disappear. That's why I tell stories, Jesus said, to create readiness, to nudge people towards receptive insight. In their present state, they can still stare till doomsday and not see it. Listen until they're blue in the face and not get it. I don't want Isaiah's forecast repeated all over, Jesus says. Your ears are open, but you don't hear a thing. Your eyes are awake, but you don't see a thing. The people are blockheads. They stick fingers in their ears and, and, and don't have to listen. They screw their eyes shut and so they won't have to look. But you, he said, have God-blessed ears and eyes that see and God-blessed ears, ears that hear. It's almost as if James has this parable in the back of his mind when he writes the words that he does in our book, urging these people in his words to humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you, verse 21. So let me ask you a very personal question. What is there in your life that keeps you from being able to hear, to receive, to have implanted in your heart the word of God? James gives us a hint. He says we have to humbly receive that word. It's pride-filled, resistant, stubborn, self-focused heads and hearts that are hard of hearing. Ears that are all but death, the clutter of life that fills us up so much so that we can't get a word from God. Or as Isaiah says it, he talks like stiff-necked and hard of heart, or Peterson calls it blockheads. We just aren't receptive to God because we're full of all this other stuff. There was a young king in Israel named Josiah. He, he ascended to the throne when he was at the tender age of eight. Second Kings 22 and 23 and Second Chronicles 24 uh, tell his, his story. In the 10th year of his reign, when he was like 18 years old, he decided that he wanted to do something for God. He wanted to do something for the temple Pagan practices, if you believe it or not, had so taken up that the, the temple was just in disarray. And there was this strange mixture of, of idol worship and pagan worship all mixed up with the worship of God. And so he appointed a team of temple cleaners uh, and repairers to put the temple back in its proper place. And the high priest of that time was a guy whose name was Hilkiah. And as he was cleaning with everybody else, the temple they discovered the book of law. They discovered, if you will, the Bible. <laughs> not only were they not listening to God, they didn't even know where the book was. And in the cleaning of the clutter, they discovered the word of God. And when young Josiah got that report, it says that he tore his clothes in despair and he went into humble mourning and repentance he realized that they had not listened to what God has to say. And so he asked Hilkiah, the high priest, to go talk to God about it. And God's response was, was pretty harsh. He was understandably angry that they had ignored his voice for so long. And he was ready to punish them. But because of Josiah's young and tender faith and his desire to repent, he said, 
I'll put it off for a while. His sorrow and Josiah's humble heart touched the heart of God. So Josiah sent out the command that all the temple repairs were to be completed and restored, and then all of the people were to come together. And then the king, Josiah himself, would read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's house. And it says that together they listened and they pledged their renewed promise to God. Sometimes it's just not a failure of our listening. It's the fact that we've we don't even know where the word is. We, we have lost connection with the word. James says that we need to humbly receive what God says and speaks into our lives. But it's also active listening. James says in verse 22, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Or another puts it, don't fool yourselves into thinking that you're listening when you're anything but letting the word go in one ear and out the other. You're not really listening. You're not actively listening. There are a lot of us, maybe a lot of you, that come to church week after week, and maybe you, you read the word on a regular basis, but it never, it never changes your life. You, you'd never know that you were in the word that much. You heard it, but... It doesn't affect how you live. When I was a kid, I went to Christian service camp. I love that. We had a lot of fun. You'd have competition. You'd have teams that would compete with each other. And, and you'd, you'd get points for, like, winning games or making up your bed or whatever kind of Bible dramas. But one of the things that you did was you would, you would study or you would memorize Scripture. And if you, if you memorize something really big, long, like the Beatitudes or a Psalm or whatever like that, you get a whole bunch of points. And if you did Jesus wept, you might get a half a point. So you, you did all those things and, and you could learn on. I guess the steroid version of that would be Bible Bowl. Maybe, I don't know if you all did that here, but you have groups of young people. It's kind of based like on the college bowl and the old TV shows of the past. And you, you, you end up just pour yourself into a word and you, you get everything you can out of the Bible and then you compete with questions and answers related to that. Now, that's a really good thing as long as the word is not just heard, but it's absorbed into the life. But I want you to be honest. How many sermons have you heard, including this one? How many lessons have you endured over your life that you can't even remember anything about? How many Bible verses have you read? Here's the kicker. <clears throat> Has it actually changed you? Are you different because you got in to, God, to, to, to God's word? James says it this way in verse 22, second part of it. <clears throat> he doesn't just encourage hearing. He goes on to say, do what it says. Act on what you've heard. Let it bring change into your life. A well-known preacher invited an evangelist to come to speak to some college students that he was leading and working with. And he was so impressed by what the visitor had to say that after it was all over with, he went up to him to say how much he appreciated what, what he'd said. He wasn't trying to ingratiate himself to this man. It wasn't mock praise. He, he honestly had been really touched by what this guy had had to say. And he thought, you know, he'd, the guy would appreciate it, but the guy looked back at him in an abrupt turn and shot back these words. Well, what are you going to do about it? 
And the preacher said that when he heard that, it really just kind of, it, 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 didn't, it didn't sit well with him. It's like, well, you know, listen, I told this guy, I appreciated what he had to say, and he, he jumps back at me, but he could not get that out of his head for the time that followed. So what are you going to do about it? You see, the self-deceptive souls just hear and do nothing and assume that that's enough. If it moves you, does it also change you? If you hear, but you don't do anything about it, what's the use? The Apostle John, in one of his short letters, said, If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living the truth. Sometimes we convince ourselves that we are something that we are not. We think we are fooling those around us, and sadly, sometimes we think we are fooling God. Being genuinely teachable means that I am also changeable. That when I hear God and listen to his voice, I will let it change the way I live. Okay, that's a little bit about the math. Let's talk about the mirror before we get through here. Uh, do you like, that's the second question, do you like looking in a mirror? Do, do, you, do you like that? You know, James continues with these words. He says in verse 23, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looked like. Now, if you're being honest, aren't there times that you get a clear look at yourself and scare yourself to death? You ever... <laughs> you ever had that happen? I came across what I, what I think is, is an interesting response to someone who takes a look in the mirror and sees themselves for what they really are. You watch and see if it doesn't strike you. <laughs> now, I've never been to a spa. But I will confess that there have been some mornings when I've got up and looked myself in the mirror and, ah, or whatever that word is. You know, your hair is here, there, and everywhere. Uh, there's bags under your eyes. There's blemishes on your face. Whatever it is that are there. James understands human nature. He says that sometimes, you know, we need to look into the mirror of, of God's word, but we don't always like what it says. It convicts us with the scary truth that we don't have it all together. Now, you may sometimes look at the Word of God and you make some modest corrections, just like you do when you look in the mirror. I get up and it's like my hair is messed up or whatever, so I grab a brush and I, I give it a little bit of this and I splash some water on my face and finally the best that I can say is, well, that's going to have to be good enough for today. You ever done that? I mean... That sometimes is the way we respond to God's word. But then we go out and people look at us and, whoa, you know, what, what have you done? James urges us to listen and to look closely, not just a casual glance, but to look, in his words, intently or carefully. Notice verse 25. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they had heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. 
Real listening requires intentionality. I had a president of the school where I was when I was in Bible college. He was he was a guy who would listen so much. He would be on the stage when a speaker was speaking, and he would he would have his mouth open, just leaning forward intently is when we look into the mirror of God's word in a deep way, not just casually, but intently. My wife, a year or two ago, was looking. She, she has a mirror that she uses in the window of our bedroom when she's doing her makeup. Now, she likes to do it in the window because of the natural light, and it fell off the window one time and broke. And honest to goodness, we looked everywhere trying to find a mirror that was exactly like the one that she had. It was one of those mirrors, you know, the kind of mirror that on one side you look normal and the other one you, you're real big, it, it magnifies everything. I'm not one for those big magnifying things. I'd like to have one that really looks at me further away because, you know, I don't, I don't want to see all the detail that was there. Well, we finally, we finally found one that was actually the right. But what James really seems to be trying to say is we, we need one of those that reflects God's word into our life but also confronts our sin, Chuck Swindoll suggests there's a big difference between a student who audits a class and one who takes it for credit. Do you ever in school do that? The student who audits the class. Now, you know, I've had some students audit my classes who were just as involved as others, but the student that audits the class, um, they don't have to necessarily read all the books or they don't take the test, they don't write the papers, they don't even have to participate in the class. Sometimes if they haven't read the book, it's better if they don't. But there's difference between the serious student who's taking it for the grade, who wade into and wrestle with whatever it's trying to say, who carefully study for the test, who try to bring back to the professor what they have learned, who generally attends in a regular way. There's, there's a big difference between that kind of student. So, so when it comes to the word, what kind of student are you? How intentional are you about your listening, about your learning? How much do you actually find yourself present in reading the book. I think part of the struggle we have in listening to God is this mistaken sense that the only thing that he's trying to do, though, is to make us feel bad. And maybe that's one of the reasons why we don't read like we could, that the law of God is a stick that's designed to beat us on the head and make us feel bad about ourselves and show us all of our blemishes. And I suppose, in a sense, the Old Testament law, in part, was for that purpose, to convict us of our sin. But that's not ultimately what the purpose of God's word is. And that's what James is trying to say here. His ultimate purpose is to bring what was at the end of that math equation that we had just a minute ago, to bring us blessing. He says it this way. He says the perfect law that gives freedom, rules that free us up. He says this new moral law is not to press us down, but to lift us up. That verse from 1 John that I mentioned a few minutes ago that talked about if we say that somehow we think we don't have sin goes on to say, but if we confess, if we admit our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. It's not intended, the word's not intended to be guilt-producing, but to be freeing. The word says that James uses for this intentful looking is the same word that was used for Peter and Mary Magdalene when they came to the tomb and intently looked in to see that Jesus was no longer there. 
Isn't it interesting to think that we look into the word not so much to see our sin, although it, it, will, it will convict us of that, but to see our salvation, to, to experience our freedom, to, to be able to celebrate our hope. It's not judgment that the law is designed, this new law is designed to do. It is our freedom to celebrate. So James wraps up this whole text by saying that when we experience God in that way, we are blessed. Listening plus doing equals what? Blessing. If the word is a burden to us, we have missed the blessing of it. If you don't know the joy of Christ, you've missed the purpose of the law. It can be and should be convicting, but it's full of joy. Okay, we've, we've, we've come to the end of this. And you know, the, the saddest reality would be that we all sat here and you listen to what I had to say and then we all walk out the door and we behave exactly the same way as we did before. That happens sometimes. I'm sorry, I do that myself. So I want to tell you one last story that might kind of nail it home for us. Joe Piscatella says that he's a believer about the effectiveness of healthy lifestyles in being able to prevent coronary artery disease. But his commitment came to him not through natural ways, but through his own personal experience. For the first 33 years of his life, uh, he was healthy. Uh, everything in his life about kind of working out or taking care of himself sort of took back pe- a back seat to uh, him just trying to move forward into life. And he'd been, he'd been pretty healthy. Uh, he didn't have any serious diseases like other people did. did. Uh, his cholesterol was a little bit high. He was a little overweight beyond what he needed to be. But there would be time, and he would take care of that sometime in the future. But in 1977, he underwent coronary bypass surgery. He was just in his early 30s. He and his wife had not celebrated their 10th wedding anniversary. His daughter was six years old. His son was just four years old. And this experience became a motivating factor to impact his whole intent of how he was going to live his life. He says it was a hard way to learn, but in retrospect, he says, what I had, if I had known what I knew about prevention after having to learn it through rehabilitation, it would have been so much better. The week after his surgery, he went home to recover, elated by the fact that he was alive and with his family again, but he was concerned about his future. He thought of it this way. Surgery had circumvented the immediate problem that is having another heart attack, but it did not stop the disease. It had not cured him. And the doctor had counseled. He said, you had heart disease the day before surgery, and you had heart disease the day after surgery, and you still have heart disease today. The surgery took away the pain, but it did not remove the disease. Only, he says, only a change in lifestyle can, refu- can, can uh, uh, reduce your future heart attack risk. Now, that, that was kind of good, because at least the guy said he could prevent it. But then he went and talked to this guy who was, uh, he was a lipid specialist. You know, if you didn't know anything about your heart, it's like how much fat and stuff you got in there that affects how it, how it clogs up. Uh, and so Joe talked to the guy and he said, well, should I change my diet and do some more exercise? And here's what the doctor said. Don't bother. You have aggressive coronary artery disease at a very early age. And these, these 
knife-sharp words. Frankly, he said, I'd be surprised if you live to the age of 40. The chances of seeing your children graduate from high school are slim. <laughs> That's not the, the kind of doctor I'd like to have as far as you know, bedside, bedside nature, but it, it did wake him up and he really went home depressed and he talked to his wife and she said, well, that's the prediction, but that's not your predestined end. Let's do what we can do to change the chances of something not happening again. And he modified his life. He listened to what he had heard and he changed. About 10 years ago in 2009, Joe celebrated his 33rd anniversary of bypass surgery by hiking up to Mount Rainier with his wife. Today, he's one of the longest living heart bypass survivors in the country, and he has made his whole career since then helping other people learn how to live healthy lives. He has seen his kids graduate from school. He has walked his daughter down the aisle for her marriage. He has toasted his son at his wedding. He has grandchildren that he has celebrated, and he has now had 50 years of marriage. Joe's outcome in life turned out to be great because he listened and he acted and he changed. You know, I did some search because I got interested in this story. Do you realize that in the studies they've done of people that have had bypass surgery, coronary artery disease, about roughly half of these patients who experience that surgery don't subsequently follow the dietary commands that are left for them, or even exercise. About a third don't even take their prescribed medications. What you know and what you don't do can kill you. You make the choice. That's why I think James is so intent in these words for us. He says, if you, if you listen and if you do, you will be blessed. There's a hospital up in Chicago that bears the same name as one that we have downtown in Cincinnati. It's called Christ Hospital. And they had this big advertising campaign, and they put billboards all over the, all over the place that said this, Christ is number one in open-heart surgery. I like that. I like that. But I also like James's clear advice. Listening plus doing equals blessing. Let's pray. God, you, uh, you speak a lot of things into our heart and our life. Some we listen to, some we, some we don't. But we confess to you this morning that some of the stuff that we hear, we just don't do anything about it. And I pray that because we have hopefully listened in an intentful way to what James would have to say to us this morning, that you will see change in our lives. Don't let us walk out the door and be exactly the same people we were when we came in. Thank you for this convicting word, but really thank you more for this freeing word that can let us live healthy, God-blessed lives. Amen.